Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for meeting with us here today. Thank you for a safe place. Thank you that we have a safe place to meet in a country that cares when our churches are threatened, cares enough to send police and to investigate. Lord, we pray that you would continue to meet with us this morning. We pray that there would be your words in my mouth, not mine. Nobody's here to hear me. Pray, Father, that we would leave here different for having met with you. Amen. Well, I hope you're enjoying this Advent season, the preparations and the bustle and the lead up to Christmas. This really is one of the most beautiful seasons of the year. But sometimes, that beauty can be hard to see. Have you turned on the news lately? It's hard to see beauty, hard to remember the season when we're surrounded by pain. Justina mentioned, and John gave us a beautiful prayer about our colleague in the office, who this week found out that her sweet son has a nightmare diagnosis. I hear stories about horrible injuries. I hear the awful things that people do one to one another. I'm sure you could share your own stories. Other people struggle with inadequacy of feeling crushed by every aspect of their lives and like there's no hope. And it's natural for us to ask when these situations come up, where is God in all of this? How can God sit idly by while so much evil happens in the world, while the people he loves are abused and starved and sick? We want God to step in to do something to make a difference in these situations. Somehow, the answer comes from heaven. Just wait. Don't get me wrong, God acts. I've seen God do miracles, miracles of healing, of provision, miracles of joy on the darkest days. But how about a world where God doesn't need to do a miracle? How about a world where the diagnosis doesn't come instead of one where a healing is needed? Well, to that question, God says, just wait. It does feel easy to think that God should just be able to wave his hand and do something. But what? What problems do we want God to solve and how? Little bit lighter of an example, Time Magazine recently named Greta Thunberg as their person of the year. Greta is a teenage Swedish climate activist, and I'm not interested in getting into the politics of that whole thing, but it seems to me that even the most ardent among us can agree that we have at least some ecological problems to address. What would that look like? What if God wanted to solve the climate problem, however you define that? Show of hands, who drove a car to get here today? Who drove a car? Or rode in a car? You don't have to drive. Hmm, might be a problem when God decides to solve the climate problem. Google Maps says that it would take me seven hours to walk here from my house. <laughs> might be a problem. How about who ran a furnace today to keep your house or apartment warm? Don't be embarrassed. There's nothing wrong with trying to keep your house warm. How about a cell phone? Who's used a cell phone today? 
Much of our transportation, temperature control, technology, and general energy use would be heavily affected if God snapped his fingers and fixed the problem. I am inevitable. All right, one person got the Marvel reference. So that's a lighthearted aspect of this question. But when we get more serious, when we talk about moral evil, the actions committed by humans, Some of us seem to be of the idea that God can somehow make us freely not do certain things. Make us freely. In philosophy, you would call that a self-contradiction, a logical incoherence. And that's how the Bible seems to treat this idea. We get the impression that God removing our ability to commit evil would be a greater evil than whatever evil we could commit. Which seems to only leave one option, and that is to remove the sinner. And we do see this answer in the Bible. There are several civilizations the Bible mentions as completely beyond saving, who need to be removed from the face of the earth the way we would cut a tumor out of a body. Or think of Noah's flood, where the world was so corrupt that God apparently decided the best course of action was to wipe out all the corruption and start over with one family. That's a terrifying thought. And it makes me very afraid of God because I don't know about you, but I know that I don't live up to God's standard of goodness. I don't even live up to my own standard of goodness. And if we're being honest, I suspect most of us would say that we don't. Not asking for a show of hands this time, so just keep them down. But how many of us really feel like we live up to our potential? Like we care for people the way that we should? Like we're the kind of parents we want to be? Like we're the spouses and friends that we want to be? Do any of us really think we do enough or are enough? I'm constantly battling my own feelings of inadequacy, professionally, personally, relationally, and especially as a husband and father. Maybe you can relate. If you can't, let's get coffee. I need to take some notes from you. But if we can't even live up to our own standards of goodness, what hope do we have of living up to God's standards of goodness? We really don't. And in fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that there is none who are righteous, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We may think we're pretty good compared to someone else, but we all fall short of God's standard. And we're so afraid of God because we know that we can't survive being in the presence of such pure holiness, goodness, and justice. The most common command in the Bible is don't be afraid, or as we've put it in this series, fear not. And it often comes from the mouth of an angel because when a human being sees an angel, they're pretty sure they're about to die. We're afraid because we don't know where we stand with God. And we know that the consequences of being in the wrong standing with him are dire. So we want God to solve evil in the world, but we're part of the problem. God promises that he will, but how? It's Christmas this week. We've been doing lots of fun things in our house to celebrate the arrival of Christmas. We've made a gingerbread train. We've gone to see Christmas lights. My sister's coming over today to decorate cookies with us. And of course, watching Christmas movies. Do you have a favorite? What's your favorite Christmas movie? Shout it out. White Christmas. White Christmas, good one. 
Home Alone? Elf, Nativity? Christmas Story? My favorite Christmas movie is, of course, Die Hard. Or maybe Lord of the Rings. Of course it's a Christmas movie. Why else would it have elves in it? My wife, though, you know what kind of Christmas movie she likes? Go on, guess. Hallmark. <laughs> They're like Christmas movies, Mad Libs. I need a big job, a small town, and an object, and poof, here's a feel-good movie. <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with watching and enjoying Hallmark movies. They are consistently about love and family and asking about what's really important at Christmas. And they're pretty sure the answer isn't money and high-powered jobs that the main character always leaves at the end. Family and love are good, but are they what Christmas is all about? One of my other favorite Christmas movies deals with this question. When a depressed Charlie Brown is trying to find meaning and purpose, he gets involved with a Christmas pageant and is asked to get a Christmas tree for the play. He comes back with a tree, a real tree. In fact, it was the only real tree on the whole lot filled with fakes. And, well, let's watch it. You've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, but this time you really did it. <laughs> what a tree! I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. You see, God saves in unexpected ways. We want God to deal with evil in the world, but we don't know how, and what he does isn't what we expected. We expected a conqueror, and he sent a baby. We expected to be destroyed, and he sent a savior. We expected the cosmos to be rewritten. He sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts to rewrite us. Instead of starting over, God made a way for us to be born again. 
And so God gives us his answer to the evil in our world. We cannot speak of a God who is far off, who doesn't care, who isn't moved by the suffering around us because our God became one of us. We cannot speak of a God who holds us to an impossible standard because he came into our world to fulfill the standard for us. We need not fear a God who will smite us as sinners because beyond all our imagining, God devised a way to remove the sin from the sinner. Not with a list of rules and commands for us to keep, but through faith and through the work of the Son. Romans 10.9 declares that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 13 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what is the result of this saving? Peace with God. Romans 5.1 tells us that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 8.1 tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the great beauty of God's unexpected saving. We don't need to be afraid of where we stand with God. So while evil prowls through the halls of power and the alleys of our streets, we can remember that God is always working and in ways we don't expect. Because just as we don't always see God now, so too they couldn't see God working all those years ago. They waited for a promised Messiah, a conquered people of God forced by a distant nation to travel at their own expense in order to register for the privilege of paying taxes to the interloper. They prayed and hoped that God would do something. But that night, there were shepherds in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that you are not a God who abandons us, a God who is lax towards love or towards justice, that you are a God who doesn't abandon us or leave us alone, but that you came, that we can know where we stand with you and that we can be standing in right with you. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who need to begin their journey with you, who have not yet made that confession, that today would be the day that we begin. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.